everyone. Welcome to Real World Parenting, tips and scripts for parents on roads less traveled. I'm Dr. Laura Anderson, a child and family psychologist, and I'm glad you're here. As you settle in to listen, let me reassure you that you are in the right place. If you're a loving parent looking for answers and encouragement, and maybe even a chuckle amidst hard things. If you're a loving parent who's raising a child on a journey different from your own as a child, and are seeking a compass as you navigate uncharted waters. This is the place for you if you get the theory of parenting advice you keep hearing, but for the love of chocolate and curry and all other nearly perfect things, that theory never quite works as planned with your actual children. Finally, you are in exactly the right place if you're a therapist or clinician who works with kids, teens, and families. My intention is that these episodes will deepen your work and change lives. So in this intro, I get two to three minutes here to boil down 30 years of work in my psychology offices and my experience as a mom in the trenches and let you know what I'll offer with this podcast. I almost called it lessons from our living rooms or couch conversations because my offerings will be things I have learned and keep learning from the vantage point of both my living room couch and my therapy office couch. The aim of this podcast is to offer hope, support, wisdom, and experience in community, to provide clinicians a window into what our recommendations actually mean for real families in real life. We will talk all things kid and teen related and shine a spotlight on families navigating identities related to race, gender, and adoption. We will explore common child and adolescent mental health and wellness related topics. The hope is to leave you with a greater understanding of your child's needs and a, you got this, energy. Episodes will also feature actual practical tips and answers to questions including, well, what do I say when? And what do I do when? So that you feel equipped to handle the day-to-day parenting puzzles we face. So pour yourself a cuppa or lace up some shoes or hide in your busy parent bathroom for a bit and join me for head and heart conversations about loving and living with children walking past less often traveled. Have I mentioned I'm glad you're here? I trust that you'll be glad. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode. I am so happy you're here, and I'm sure you will be too. And I'm thrilled to welcome Emily Kircher Morris. Welcome, Emily. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm excited because we're going to have a conversation about all kinds of uh, fabulous things and kids who have beautifully complicated learning, social, loving, and living profiles. Um, so welcome today. Talk a little bit about your background and how we end, yeah. up, end up being here today. Sure. Well, I think you you and I kind of have some similar backgrounds as we were talking. So I started out in the schools as an educator um, and I taught um, for over a decade and um, I worked as also as a school counselor. I actually, when I was a teacher, I taught actually in gifted ed programming mm-hmm. primarily. I also taught in the gen ed classroom. And so, um, but what I really loved always was focusing on those social and emotional needs of, of kids who learn and think differently. So So I went back and got a second master's in counseling and family therapy, and now I am a licensed professional counselor outside of St. Louis, Missouri, and 
primarily work with kids and teens. I also have three children who are all neurodivergent. I am neurodivergent. I was actually diagnosed with ADHD as a kid, which back when I was a kid was not a common thing. And so all of those pieces have really um, kind of brought me to where I am. I, I also host the Neurodiversity Podcast, and I've written several books, both about parenting and educating neurodivergent kids. So it really is my passion, and I'm just thrilled to be here and talk to you about it today. Yeah, I love that. And absolutely, both of us you know, start from a place of the intersection of what we've learned in office couches, school classrooms, and living room couches, <laughs> as mm -hmm. I like to say, right? Like, here's a theory, and now the application. So um, <laughs> one of the things that we wanted to talk about or start from this place of like affirmation. So if you're a parent, if you're a clinician listening in, if you're a teacher who's recognizing that it really benefits you and everybody else in your world to understand neurodivergent learning profiles, um, what are some ways to be affirming? What are some ways yeah. to affirm the neurodivergent uh, kiddo? Maybe define how you define neurodivergent uh, child mm -hmm. and teen and, and how do you affirm and support them? Yeah. So, yeah, I think I think starting off with the definition is probably a good idea because I think for some people this may be a new term. Um, so so neurodiversity um, and neurodivergent re refers to the idea that um, there are all kinds of brains and and it is working to move away from pathologizing those different um, the way that different people learn and think. So. Um, so it could be individuals who have a diagnosis of like autism or um, what we used to call Asperger's, which really isn't a term that we use anymore clinically, um, but some people are familiar with that. Um, ADHD, um, dyslexia, dyscalculia, um, dysgraphia, all of these things that really are about um, differences in how the brain is structured and how those people operate in the world. And a big push within the neurodiversity movement and community is about kind of reclaiming and embracing those identities and recognizing that those are things that influence who we are and our communities and our culture. And so in the past, what we have tried often to do is frequently use like behavioral interventions to make, make people appear normal whatever normal is, there's really no such thing as normal, right? You know? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So, so what we're really trying to do now, and this is what gets into the affirming piece is meeting individuals where they are and really challenging some of the beliefs that we have about the status quo um, and asking, first of all, is this what is best for this individual? So, let me give just one example and then I'll, and then you can kind of give me some feedback and we can kind of figure out where, you know, what other ideas or questions we might have. But so one of the common things that people think about when they think about neurodivergent kids is they think about um, the fact that a lot of autistic individuals struggle with making eye contact. That's something that is uncomfortable for them. It's not something that comes naturally to them when they're communicating. And so one of the things that people have said is like, you need to make eye contact. You have to make eye contact. You have to do all of these things. Like this is how people know, this is respect, all of these other pieces. Or they'll say, well, if you can't make eye contact, then you can fake making eye contact. So you can look at somebody's forehead or you can look at somebody's chin. Um, and those are not neurodiversity affirming. Those are, again, trying to make, take somebody who is neurodivergent and make them look 
like they're part of the neuronormative population. Something that would be more affirming, though, would be teaching a neurodivergent person to recognize that that is something that's difficult for them and having them be able to self-advocate and say, it is much easier for me to listen and focus and pay attention on what you're saying. If I'm looking at the floor, please don't interpret not making eye contact as anything more than I'm trying to focus that works best for me. And the flip side of being affirming is not so much on the neurodivergent person's shoulders, but also on other people, on, on society, that we can recognize that whether or not someone makes eye contact does not mean that they are either respectful or not. It doesn't mean that they're listening or not. And we really have to break free from some of those things and really zone in on what each individual needs in order to provide a place where they're able to learn um, and and play and grow all of these things like in a way that that works best for them and is healthy for them based on their neurology. And, and I think one of the challenges we face both at home and school that I talk a lot about in the podcast is, and I get it as a mom, I get it. We want to know like when he does this thing, what one response do I have so that behavior never comes back again, right? Like, mm-hmm. so this thing, so, so, and that's a big shift for all human support and behavioral management, but especially for kids who are neurodiverse is this idea exactly that the change, changing a behavior often starts with looking at, you know, how fair are the expectations, the expectations you have are you understanding the child's learning profile? Now, this does not mean that we do not hold kids accountable for learning and being kind and knowing. I mean, parents always, or clinicians and teachers, in the beginning, as we're starting to understand this stuff, almost feel like I'm about to write a pass for a kid to behave any way they want to, and for us just to understand that is not what I'm talking about. It's it is exactly that. Like, yes, the child is expected to listen, and Here's how they do it best. If you're using the traditional cueing, you may not only not get what you want, you may get the opposite uh, of what you want. So, so yes, to your point, we wish there was one quick thing that you could do in response to every behavior that a teacher throws out that, that would minimize that or a parent throws out. But a lot of it is the scaffolding, the understanding, some self-reflection, like, am I, you know, which of these battles... Am I really needing to stick to? Am I asking about it the right way? Mm-hmm. Um, for sure. So, so yeah. So to be affirming means to be thinking about uh, being settings or at home or in school where you're learning how your child communicates and gets through routines and feels best. And then you're working with them to advocate. Yeah. Learn for themselves and advocate what they need as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think to me, one of the biggest things when you boil it down about being affirming with our neurodivergent kids is recognizing that we want them to feel like they are their authentic self, Mm -hmm. that they are not trying to pretend to be something that they are not because Okay, here's a perfect example. And I'm going to go back to that example about the eye contact. So I had a client at one point in time and um, they were a high school student and had excellent insight. But over the years, they collected a variety of different diagnoses like central auditory processing disorder, sensory processing disorder, social anxiety. And finally, finally, they ended up with the one diagnosis that kind of 
covered all of those things, which was autism. And um, we, you know, I had known this, we had been working with the family, all of these different things. But um, once we finally had that diagnosis, I'm talking to this client and I said, you know, well, let's talk, let's look through the diagnostic criteria and kind of see where it fits for you. And we started talking about eye contact. And I specifically said to this client, I said, you know, this is one example of like nonverbal communication, but a lot of, you know, I don't really notice this so much with you. And what they said to me was, oh, let me tell you, Emily, <laughs> they said, you know, every time we're talking, I am constantly thinking, make eye contact. Okay. Is that long enough? Okay. Now look away. Okay. Wait, now I have to look back. How, okay. How, how much longer should I? And it was so insightful, but what I, but I, what I am always amazed by is think about how much bandwidth that has to take for that person to be running that in the background and trying to do that while also focusing on what's happening and replying and in a world that's really not set up. And I, I just thought that was, you know, amazing. And, and for a lot of kids who are neurodivergent, if you tell them frequently enough to make eye contact, if you tell them frequently, like they'll start to do those things, but it's a detriment to them. Right. And, and cost. Yeah. that's what we have to kind of overcome. You know, that that's, that's where we, when we're talking about being affirming, like, we just have to question those things more, more thoroughly question our assumptions and our expectations. And I mean, I think we all have the same hopes, right. For, for then end goal of comfortable kids available for learning and social connection, right. right? We want comfortable kids available for learning and social connection. That's overly simplified, but no, I think that's a pretty good way. I think that boils it down quite nicely. In a nutshell. And so the question becomes, how do we get there? And for kids who, you know, fall into the category of having some um, neurological processing differences, the ends to get there are different. They just require that, yeah, you don't ask for um, eye contact as much. What, what, are, what are one or two? two other affirming things you can yeah. think of that you've noticed or patterns or themes that come up for kiddos across sure. the community. Um, this is a big one and, and probably, uh, uh, well, a couple of different things, you know, so in school specifically, I think, well, what I find is that in general, it's much easier to be neurodiversity affirming at home just because we can adapt so much more. It's, and it's like you just kind of do what, you know, makes your kid feel good. And sometimes sometimes you don't even realize you're doing it because a lot of times neurodivergent kids have neurodivergent parents. And that's just <laughs> what the household is like, you know, which is actually quite, quite wonderful. Yeah. Um, but at school, one of the things that comes to mind, for example, is um, so social connection. So there are just like with everything, there are neurodivergent people who have varying levels of desire for social connection. And there are some, again, this kind of falls with the autism diagnosis, although that's not the only type of neurodiversity, but um, there are some autistic individuals who are kind of asocial, like that's just not their thing. They don't mind being on their own. And, and what we end up doing is we end up projecting our expectations about what friendship should look like or what those relationships should look like. So we kind of try to force them into these situations, which are kind of uncomfortable for them and that they don't really want and, and aren't, and even if they have, it's like, it doesn't really change. Like they don't feel fulfilled by it. Like that's just not their thing. So I know I've worked with um, both when I was a school counselor, but also I've worked with and teachers and, you know, kids will go outside to recess and they'll want to bring a book with them. And they're like, we don't want them to bring a book. They need to play with their friends. They need to be social. And I just have to question that and say, well, 
if it's their recess, <laughs> yeah, and this is the way shouldn't they be able to choose? Yeah, what they want to do. Now, it's different if they are feeling anxious and they want those friendships and they don't know. Like that's a that's yeah. different. Yeah. But truly, if if they're happy just doing that on their own, that's okay. Um, you know, so that's so we can kind of challenge those expectations that we have. Like, is this is this what they want or is this what we want? And kind of trying to sort those three things out. Um, Another example would be just as far as like providing accommodations for sensory needs. Um, And so, you know, so, so I have three kids, they're all neurodivergent and, you know, have different needs, but at the beginning of this school year, so my, my son's going to be a sophomore in summertime now. Right. And so, but he was at his first week of freshman year, he came home with a syllabus from one of his classes. And in this syllabus, the teacher had put in there under expectations, like no headphones or earbuds ever. Like basically like that was, you know, it was like, I mean, it was worded very strongly. I don't know that that was the exact quote. And I just wanted to look at that and said, that is, that is, (laughs) that is actively unaffirming. (laughs) Like it's not even just not being neurodiversity affirming because there are as, as, an ADHD or right? Like earbuds are when, when I'm working at home and I'm writing, like writing some of my books, I always have headphones on and I'm always listening to instrumental music because it helps me tune out all of the other things. Or there are people who just, you know, and when, when you word it that way, like in your course syllabus, that there, there's no exceptions. Well, you know, who's never going to ask for an accommodation, (laughs) anyone who needs it. And so you've just shut that off. And so when we start to really just be more open-minded about those things and recognize that we can empower kids to know how they learn and think and socialize best. Um, and, and we can trust them with that. Like we don't have to always impose our own, own beliefs or strategies or expectations on them. On them. Yeah, no, that's yeah. Same end game of learning and being able to focus but right, what we know, kids with ADHD need some stimulation to focus. And, and yeah. if you happen not to have ADHD, then it's hard to imagine that having the TV on while you get homework done or having the whatever, you, you know, it could actually be helpful. Yeah. Um, so well, yeah. I always know if I don't have those headphones on, I'll be like... I was when I took the ACT when I was in high school. It was a very quiet room. Mm-hmm. This was back in the '90s, right? And remember those those track suits that were like yeah. those that swishy material. Yeah. And there was like a person over on the other side of the room, and they were bouncing their leg the whole time. And all I heard was shh, shh, shh. Yeah. And it, I it about I it about blew my mind. Like, I yeah, exactly. But that's the thing. <laughs> yeah. No. When I took my when was it was it my GRE? I think it was one of those uh-huh. big standardized tests. The proctor was knitting. Oh come on! It, so it was like shh. <laughs> that like, clicking of the needles yeah oh, oh no. my god yeah i was like i'm gonna take those needles and yeah no it was pretty funny i'm like no so yeah I, that would have driven me crazy yeah. because yeah. those those are the noises that for me personally are like i'm super sensitive to take like you know clocks anything that's like a repetitive you know yeah. um thing it's, it's totally distracting and if i hear that i can't it it pulls all of my focus off of what i'm trying to do and so you know we need to recognize that for kids, you know, I don't know if, you know, a lot of the people who maybe are educators are honestly probably parents out there have seen like some of the images that schools put in place, like, um, you know, this is a whole body listener and this is what this looks like making eye contact, hands in your laps, you know, or I mean, if you can see this, see this little fidget ring, I mean, we're on zoom right now. You can see this when I'm doing any sort of interview or zoom or anything, I'm, 
I'm, I always have, I have actually have multiple of them because sometimes they fly out across the room when I, <laughs> when I fling them, That's awesome. but I know that I need this and it helps me focus. It helps me. Otherwise I'm picking at my nails or I'm, I will find something in my hands. Right. And so yeah. this, this fulfills that for me. And I always am amazed, you know, adults are given the privilege of choosing their environment. Kids are not right. Like people say, Oh, ADHD, it went away. They became an adult and they're no longer ADHD. I'm like, well, are they no longer ADHD or did they choose a career that allows them to harness the strengths of their, their neurological wiring, you know, or as opposed to kids who are forced to be in classrooms all day, every day. Yeah, no, right. That, that's a great point. And the, and I think the, the, you know, I understand why and hats off to, to you as a teacher, me in schools, like it is so hard to teach. I have nothing but respect for teachers. We need them more than ever and ever and ever now. And, um, it's hard when you're trying, when things are becoming increasingly standardized from a system standpoint and they're being, it's like a trickle down. They're being pressured to fit into a box and deliver things in a certain way. And in order for that to work for them, the students in the classroom need to deliver. And so it creates this trickle down anxiety and that, you know, we had touched base before about it, but that's something that stands out to me as well. Is that when you, when you're getting mixed messages about what you're supposed to do or not supposed to do that you need to do it in a way that actually doesn't work for you you know, we were discussing this, one of the things that we encounter in our offices in kids who are trying to navigate the world with some neurodivergence is a a fairly high amount of anxiety. Can you speak a little bit about what you see in your work and how you understand that? Yeah, well, I think, I think there's anxiety for a lot of different reasons um, for for neurodivergent kids. So like when you're talking about someone who has a specific learning disability, like dyslexia or dyscalculia, like I was mentioning, obviously there's anxiety there about that discrepancy between their ability and what they know they can do and should do, but that the academics aren't measuring up. So that causes anxiety Um, for kids whose neurodivergence influences their behavior um, and their social interactions. There's often a lot of social anxiety or fear about being seen as different. And then also just um, just, just anxiety in general. So specifically like when I think about ADHD kids, I think about executive functioning. And, and actually, so I'm going to give an example from my own experience too. So um, I was on ADHD meds as a kid. When I got to adulthood, I'm like, yeah, I don't know if that was a real, you know, accurate diagnosis. And so I went off my meds and these different things. And I went over a decade treating myself for anxiety and depression. And then when my oldest, who's now 15, when he was in second grade and started ADHD medication, and I saw how much it helped him, I went back to my doctor and I said, you know, I had this diagnosis. What do you think? She goes, let's try. My anxiety went away because I was not, it wasn't clinical anxiety. It was anxiety about the inattention and the executive functioning difficulties and the overwhelm. And once I got a handle on that, I wasn't experiencing the same type of anxiety. That, I, I really want to, to highlight that a little bit because I think that's super powerful and we see it a lot. And it's, you know, it's our clinical work to see if when we're sitting in our office, see if we can help tease some of that out for folks. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but I think that's a really great point when 
kids are having a difficulty or anybody's having difficulty with the executive functioning. And for folks listening, you know, that's planning, time management, organization, being able to sequence stuff. Um, it's really, it's really like, and to think ahead and plan and organize and keep your stuff together to get it done. Right. Think about how much of that is what we ask young people to do a lot of these days, mm -hmm. right. And organize their thoughts and, and execute well, and, and start. That's another part mm -hmm. of executive functioning, right. Is the, okay, now actually start it piece as well. Right. Mm -hmm. And so if you have a child who isn't able to do those things, what I often say is that you're there and there they get, especially once they get to a certain age, whether or not they tell you, in my experience, whether or not they're yeah. telling their parents, they have an increasing awareness that they're not measuring up and that they're getting a ton of more corrective feedback than their siblings or their classmates or, or whoever it is. Right. And some kids handle that by by turning inward and experiencing a lot of anxiety. And some kids handle that by turning outward. And mm -hmm. I still say that's anxiety, right? The, totally. the frustrated behavior. So if you're a parent and you're kind of scratching your head and wondering, could that executive functioning be a piece of what's going on for your kid? It's, it's really worth trying to check that out because once things flow, once you can plan and organize and juggle and execute you're more able to deliver in school. You won't forget to feed the dog 19 times. You, you know what I mean? Like that, that yeah. kind of stuff. And, and so I really appreciate you sharing that, Emily, because that's super powerful for a lot of folks, the connection yeah. between successful navigation of what's being asked of you and how you feel about yourself as a person right. and how stressed out you are. Yeah, no, I, I think a lot of times parents are worried about giving their kids a label yeah. And so they're hesitant and there's so much stigma about diagnosis. And so that's part of the reason why we started the podcast, because we really want to destigmatize all of these diagnoses yeah. and just kind of like, let's just call it what it is. But what you have to remember is that if you are giving an accurate label, they're picking up a different label somewhere else. And it's like, I'm lazy, I'm unmotivated, I'm stupid, I'm, you know, no, I'm Weird. unlikable. Weird, yeah, yeah, those are the yeah. ones that and, come up a mm -hmm. lot. And, and so, so when, we, when we recognize these things and are able to get an accurate label, then we can talk to kids and say, hey, listen, this is something that's kind of difficult for you. And that's okay, but you have these other strengths that come along with this. And so let's figure out a system that works for you. Yeah. That, that we can then, you know, as opposed to internalizing, like, I'm supposed to be like everybody else and I'm not, what's wrong with me? Right. And starting to have, what, what do those conversations look like, Liv? I know some of the ones I've had are just like starting to talk to kids about the fact that, you know, we're not looking, it's not the, we aren't looking to blame anybody or anything, but kid brain is so egocentric and kind of boils things down that kid brain will look for who to blame, right? So, mm -hmm. so, so your child is trying to figure out whether to blame the teacher or blame themselves. Now, we hopefully understand it's more complicated than that. There isn't one entity to blame. The reality is that systems are set in place for mass numbers of people and they kind of shot the middle in what they were asking mm -hmm. folks to be able to do. 
and not everybody is in middle and and guess what you know weird is the new cool and the nerds run the world and you know like all of the, the most interesting people that i know in life were not some of the most standardized learners so there's so really starting to plant seeds early uh, and again, not dismissing a child from ever having an expectation of themselves or being able to, to, to shine or do well, but to begin to talk about the fact that, that the, it, honestly, what we want them to understand is the problem isn't them. It's a system that hasn't quite figured out all the beautiful nuances in the way different neurodiverse brains work. Cause no two, no two brains are the same period. Right. So right. <laughs> Yeah. Well, and, yeah. and I think you've kind of hit on one of the things that is the most difficult piece about the being neurodiversity affirming. And, th and that is the fact that because everybody has such different needs, often the, that affirming practice might be in conflict, like especially when we think about, for example, um, um, like sensory needs. Right. And so in my own household, and this is in, in the house, it's like I am very sound sensitive. And, and not only is it distracting to me, but depending on my own just regular stress level, um, it, it's very ir irritating to me. And my daughter, who's, you know, going into eighth grade, she makes a lot of noise. <laughs> she's, she's a percussionist and she, she's always oh. tapping the things and, you know, like all of the noises all of the time. And so, but that's to her comforting, right? Like that's her, and that's just something that's very, so, so how do we find that middle ground? How do we yeah. kind of try to navigate that? And so, but the benefit of me being aware of that is that we can have those conversations, yeah. you know, and, and, and we can find alternate ways, you know, and sometimes it means we're in separate rooms. Sometimes it means I go somewhere else. Sometimes it means I put on some head, you know, whatever it might be, but also like, I think it's fair to recognize that it is not always easy to be totally neurodiversity affirming in all environments. Like, it's just like, even, even if the goal was to do so, logistically, yeah. when you get people in the same room, like those are sometimes going to be in conflict. So, you know, if you're in the classroom and you have a student who really um, likes to pace, right? And that's really comforting to them while they're thinking, that can be distracting to some kids. So, so what's the solution there where you can try to accommodate both? And there are some creative solutions you can come up with, but, but both of them, you know, might need to figure out, you know, it's like, maybe it means that this one student's going to work somewhere else where they're not distracted from the sight line, you know, that person, yeah. or maybe there's a different, um, type of, of activity that the one who likes to pace could do instead in some situations, but you, ha you have to be able to kind of talk through it a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things that I've, that I do in my work, the sensory stuff completely changed my completely changed yes. my family functioning and the families of countless folks that uh, that we've been in conversation with since I do a list in my clinical work I do a list and I suggest parents and teachers coordinate a little bit I do a list of soothers like like you know triggers and soothers not just what are the triggers and how does this go off the rails but some soothers and it's actually really interesting I find to do with parents as well I drafted them up based on like sensory category or whatever and um and just to have people sit down together and talk mm -hmm. through like oh this you know here's the triggers oh yeah that drives you nuts oh these isn't that funny our triggers <laughs> are the same or oh they're totally opposite but then the soothers right would would a hot water bottle work would a snow globe turned upside down help you chill out would music work would so 
getting folks to think and be in conversation together helps them learn more about themselves, each other. And, and again, is it a magical solution? Is it going to suddenly eradicate these needs that these kids have or the behavior? No, but, but what I say to teachers, I'll smile and I'm like, how's what you're doing working now? You know, it's like, it is a little bit like, let's try it because what we know is that it increases the frequency of success. It doesn't mean you never have another issue again, but it, it means your skill building and it increases the, the, the chance of success and regulation in the classroom. And kids can't learn if they're not right. regulated. How do you get teacher or parent buy-in? Mm. You know, I think, um, I think that the, there is a growing awareness um, I think to me, when I go and do trainings with teachers, and I, I do a lot of traveling and, and professional development for educators, and one of the questions that I ask when we talk about accommodations and making accommodations is, what is the either the learning objective of what we're trying to have the child show that they're able to do, or why do we have these particular rules? And if we really can't give a good answer for those things, or if, you know, if we recognize that the objective of the learning is to see if they comprehended this reading, this reading that they did, well, if they can't write it down, but they can tell you about it, we should make that accommodation. And so we can boil it down that way or or the flip side, like there are a lot of neurodivergent kids and this has to do sometimes with some of the social communication and like the, the, the hidden social rules that we kind of have in society. Um, they don't, they don't buy into the whole power hierarchy stuff. <laughs> and so, and so, you know, we say, well, this person is the principal or this person is, you know, the teachers, you have to be deferential and respectful. And it's like, well, why? I don't know about you. I don't have a great answer for that question. Like, <laughs> yeah. cause that's the way it always is. Like, and we can, we can talk to kids and recognize like, okay, this is the game we have to play. We have to do some of these other things, but also we, we want to kind of meet kids where they are and, and recognize like if there's a child who is neurodivergent and they say something to you, that's kind of like point blank and sounds like it's not very respectful. What you really have to remember is it's not about you as a, you know, as a teacher or as yes. a parent. Um, it, it's really just about the communication style that they have. And so again, trying to remove that emotion, but then also answer the question why, like why, you know, when we, when we come at it from that angle, so often the frustration that we feel is more about our own emotions than it is about anything that the child is or isn't doing. And so, so then when we come into it kind of with that neutral perspective, then we can problem solve and we can, and we can help them figure out what they need. Yeah. And that's great. One of my other things I talk about a lot is, and I can never say it too much. is like what the story of why the story mm-hmm. you're telling yourself of why a behavior or response is happening is so critical in how we approach it, the connection we yes. will have or not, and the regulation we will achieve or not. So just being able to stay curious about like, is there a different way I can understand this? Is there an unmet need here that, that I'm not aware of? And 
And yeah, that's easier on some days than others. Nobody's saying mm-hmm. it's easy. Nobody's saying it's an automatic fix. There have been many a time where I've been like, oh, nice one, Dr. Anderson, like in my own <laughs> home. Like, woo, sure, I'm glad that, yeah, podcast wasn't recording that little snippet. You know, like th- these are definitely, the, you know, it's real. And I join with a lot of parents about that as well. Um, but just being able to, to, to check in and, and stay curious and step back and ask, you know, is this child having a sensory need? I don't understand. Is this child having an executive functioning need that I'm not centering right now? You know, how else can I think about what's happening and be flexible? One of the other biggest triggers, and this is kind of getting concrete again too, but I often used to say, if I had a nickel for every neurodiverse kid who wouldn't write things out, <laughs> like I could have retired. Like there's something about the connection. Mm-hmm. There's a wiring thing that has to do yeah. with written output and and kids who are quite bright and fully capable and can actually comprehend Mm-hmm. what you wanted them to get from a learning, from a reading chapter, from a movie they watched, from a whatever, simply cannot translate, transmute, and and produce a written document that shows it. Am I, mm-hmm. I mean, do you see that in your... Oh, yeah, yeah, actually. And, and I can give you, you know, he, here are some of the reasons that I noticed that, like what I think is behind that. So first of all, I think one of the major things is processing speed. A lot of neurodivergent kids who struggle with writing have pretty low processing speed. And so if you have slow processing speed and you're trying to think about what you want to write in your head, first of all, that's slower. And then you've got to get that message down and, and kind of try to put it you know, in writing. So that's one factor. Another one is that a lot of kids struggle with executive functioning pieces. And what's one of the executive functioning pieces, but prioritizing and sequencing, like you, you mentioned earlier. And so when you're writing, you have to... You have to think about all the things that you want to say. You have to kind of logically put them in your in your mind, like in order, and then you have to get them down on the paper. So that's another factor. Sometimes it is the it is the the motor piece of it. Like they're just like that can just be hard and and tedious for kids. Um, And and sometimes it's the ambiguity of the of the request. And so, like, give me a science or a math question that I can just answer. And I know it's the just right answer and I can write it down. Tell me to write about my weekend. And I don't know what you want me to say. And and that is, again, that's a communication difference. But you know, and there are more too. I mean, it's like, those are just a handful of them, but those are some of the primary reasons why I feel like it's so hard for kids to get things written down. But when we get really stuck on that as either, you know, as educators or as parents trying to get the kids to write things down, and we just have to really realize like, Writing things down is not the only way that we can show that we've learned something. You know what? The other one was that I was um, thinking of is that a lot of neurodivergent kids um, are not verbal thinkers. They're visual spatial thinkers. And so then you're asking, like school is inherently verbal, like it's inherently language based. And when you have a kiddo who struggles sometimes with that and thinks more in pictures or in images, which a lot of neurodivergent kids do, that doesn't translate well to writing an essay. And so we have to be more creative about those things and we have to be accommodating. <laughs> in, in our own home, I have a, a, a child who loves to produce PowerPoints to persuade me oh, yeah. for a certain thing, right? As a, as a great example. 
For those clinicians tuning in, guess what else is usually a highly verbal process that needs to shift for um, kids in community? Get out your pictures, get out your stick figure drawings, get out your puppets, get out your cartoons, your decision-making trees, Mm -hmm. your fill-in-the-blanks, your made-up Mad Libs, your, you know what I mean? Like, it's grounding this stuff. I really appreciate that as a as a key takeaway too, in terms yeah. of the, the visual spatial thinking and communicating and, and yeah, when it comes down to it, if we're, if we're trying to work toward, you know, mastery of some information, which is often what, um, school is, then we've got to be creative about how we're accessing what has been learned. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned that, too, about about for clinicians. And and I'm going to kind of bring it back to the parent piece of that. So let's say you've got your neurodivergent child in therapy. Right. Or whatever. It's going to look different than when an adult goes into therapy and they just kind of like blurt out all of the things. So there are times like I do a lot of puzzles in my office. And the nice thing about doing a puzzle is that, first of all, is kind Distraction, so I don't have to sit there and stare at this person who's asking me these questions, but also it allows for a lot of processing speed. But what I have to realize is like that, that, or that processing time for them to kind of really think about what they want to say before they respond. Um, but it's a slower process. It is not going to happen as quickly um, as maybe somebody who comes into a counseling session and says, this is my problem. I got to figure out how to handle it. You know, it it just looks a little bit different, but I have come to kind of trust that process. I think when I first started, I always felt like I had an answer immediately for families. Um, and, and, and now I realize it's like, we'll get there, you know, and these are kids who are going to have differently wired brains for their entire life. And so that's okay. We want them to feel empowered to build those skills that work for them. Yeah. I think that's a great spot to think about sort of pulling things together. So what, what I'm hearing and what folks can learn more, tell tell me really, what are the names of your books again? Let folks know. Yeah, sure. So, so I have one book um, that is called teaching twice exceptional learners in today's classroom. That one's primarily for educators. And I have two that are out for parents. One is raising twice exceptional children, um, a handbook for parents of neurodivergent gifted kids. And um, the other one is a parent's guide to gifted children. So again, I mentioned I have that background in gifted ed. So twice exceptional is a term that means somebody who is both gifted and has another one of these like neurodivergent diagnoses layered on top. Yeah. So great resources there for parents and teachers. Parents, hopefully you're working in tandem as a team with your kids' teachers. And so there are ways to be able to connect around this stuff that that helps everybody feel more successful. Um, and that, that what we hope folks are taking away from today is just the, the importance of the affirmation, the being in conversation, teaching your child to advocate staying curious about the why, um, that it could be sensory, that it could be processing, executive functioning, um, and that there are some kind of standard stressors that come out too. So you may be looking at a child who is increasingly aware of the rub between how they function and how the world wants them to function. And as humans, we all respond differently to mm-hmm. being put in a situation where we're not thriving. Um, right. So an invitation to stay curious and, um, learn as much as you can and be creative. Um, and that, yeah, there's no easy fix. What, 
any other final takeaways, anything you want to leave clinicians or parents or teachers with? Just, no, I, I think you wrapped it up really quite nicely. I think, um, you know, finding a community of people who understand is really important. And so the more that you can do that, um, you know, the better it is. And, um, you know, just just honoring the fact that kids kids know what works and what doesn't for them. They might not always know the solution, but we can trust that, you know, they're going to... When they tell us something, we can trust that, you know, that there's something behind it. And so then we just have to kind of try to try different solutions. A little bit of trial and error sometimes is all, you know, is all we have, but, you know, we can make progress with it. Yeah. And it, and, it, and you mentioned, and to highlight too, a lot of it is managing our own <laughs> emotional mm-hmm. reaction to feeling out of control, to feeling we're not solving a problem fast enough, to feeling that there are, and this is for parents and teachers alike, for, to feeling that there's going to be implications for our value if our, if the child with us is not doing what's expected of them. So managing your own emotional reaction to feeling unsuccessful and and getting curious, I always saying knees bent, palms up, um, and, and staying connected at the end of the day, the relationship pieces in the long run um, are such an important part, especially for kids who aren't necessarily going to be able to navigate in the mainstream. And I think one final plug as we're wrapping up here, uh, again, meaning like how many people do you know in adulthood who are just fabulously neurodiverse and when they when kids are seen and when there is some flexibility in the environment around them and when they're able to get out and do what they love doing um just really beautiful things happen so when we talk about having neurodiverse brains for life that is meant to be that's an invitation again i keep what keeps coming to mind is stay curious wait and see what happens when this kiddo can do what they'd like to do all day or what their natural tendencies are so so just to plug again that some of the most you know thought leaders social justice changers um all kinds of folks doing really cool things have had to navigate these sorts of things. So if we're shifting away from the pathology and shifting away from the deficit model, we all win. Yeah, totally agree. Great. Well, thank you so much, Emily. I appreciate you being here today. And I look forward to us connecting again at some point. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Sure. All right. Well, thanks for listening today. Just a quick note here at the end to say I am so glad you joined and I hope you are too. And if you'd like to connect with me more, come take a look at my website, www.drlauraanderson.com. There you can join my newsletter, keep in touch and find out what is in the works. You can also join me for coffee and conversation uh, and Facebook at Common Cord Psychology Services. So check me out those places and I look forward to further connection. I'm glad you were here today.